Amen. Good morning, fellowship. Good to see everybody out there. Um, I know you've been welcomed by several people, and I'll just say hello as well. My name is Rob Sweet. If I haven't met you, I'd love to do that. Come down front. I'd love to say hello. Sometime after I teach, I'd love to put a name with a face. Before we dive into the text, I just want to give you guys a brief update about our elder team. We're an elder-led church, and I know many of you have been to other kinds of churches that are led differently. The Bible doesn't dictate one specific way that the local church should be led, but one of the principles we see in the New Testament is a plurality of leaders. And in the Bible, they call them elders, the shepherds, you know, pastors of the church. And we have an elder board here at Fellowship. It's nine men. It's some staff, some lay people, but it's always more lay people than staff people. And, and I serve on that team along with eight others. And uh, it's a wonderful team of individuals that shepherd this church through a lot of prayer and a lot of conversation. The term is three years that you serve, and then your term can be renewable for another three, so six maximum. We have two individuals that are gonna be rolling off our board in this season. Chris White, who is here at this campus. Um, Chris has been serving for three years and done an exceptional job, and is just at a stage with his young family where it's just more than what he can hold and balance and do both things very well right now. So. Chris has chosen to step off the board for a season. And then Richard Scott, who's been serving for a very long time, is getting a very well-deserved break, rolling off our elder board for a season of time. So Chris and Richard will be stepping off, and we wanted to present two new men to you for consideration for our elder team. And I want to just let you know who those are today, Tim Martin and Corey Cleek. You might recognize Tim. He's a Franklin campus member, along with his wife, Lisa. Corey and his wife, Sally, and family attend the Brentwood campus. You're going to have a chance to get to know both of these men. Two weeks from today, we'll take a, a brief part of our service for you to get to know them. And then between services, they're going to be available here in our campus for a short meet and greet just to get to know them a little bit more. So just wanted to give that on your radar now. That website at the bottom, fellowshipbiblechurch.org slash elders is where you can learn more about them, get to know them through their bio, learn more about our eldering process. If you have any information about these men, if there's any reason you have to believe that they would not shepherd this body with integrity and character, or if you believe for whatever reason they're not elder qualified individuals, we wanna know. We need to know. This is part of this process. So for the next five or six weeks or so, we're gonna have opportunity to get to know um, I hear from you all, rather, as you all get to know them. So you'll get to meet them in person two weeks from today. I just want to give you a heads up and encourage you, uh, if you have anything, we would reach out to us. We would love to, to hear from you on that. All right, let's dive now into our text. And as Carl already mentioned, we're in the study in Philippians. You can go ahead and open your Bible to uh, Philippians chapter one. We're gonna dive into verse 12 in just a minute. Uh, by the way, if you did not get one of these, pick one up. They're out in the lobby. This is a great thing to take notes in. I love the fact that it's got the text on the left. It's got blank pages on the right to take notes or journal or doodle or do all those things that'll help the text come to life for you. That's important to us. We have some extra copies out there in the lobby. You know, one of the favorite, uh, one of my favorite kinds of movies are those kinds of movies where there's a big twist near the end. And uh, oftentimes you don't even see it's coming. It's like the storyline's a jumbled mess and you're thinking, how in the world is any of this gonna come together and make sense? And then there's that moment where it all just, crystallizes. Or sometimes it's such a big twist that makes you rethink everything you've already seen. The classic example is the sixth sense. I, I've used that before as a sermon illustration. I'm not going to talk about this one, but the same director 
uh, that directed The Sixth Sense, M. Night Shyamalan, directed another movie called Signs. And I want to talk about Signs for a little bit. By the way, I had to Google his name to make sure I was pronouncing it right. And, and Shyamalan, Shyamalan, M. Night Shyamalan. And while I was Googling, I found this photo of him. I thought I'd put on the screen because I thought it was funny. I was like, he just looks like a guy that, that knows something you don't know. <laughs> And that's how you feel when you watch his movies. So, you know, M. Night Shyamalan made The Sixth Sense. He did this movie, Signs. A friend of mine said, Rob, you need to rewatch it if it's been a while, because I, I kind of just thought it was weird and creepy with the aliens. So I rewatched it, Jody and I did, and it's still weird and creepy with the aliens. But I did forget about how the storyline culminates. You know, this family had been through deep pain, deep hurt, had lost the, the wife, who's Mel Gibson, that plays this former pastor. He'd rejected God, like he'd set God to the side. You see all these clues of this throughout the movie. And then I, I, won't, I won't give everything away, but at the very end, you know, there's a couple scenes right near the end where you're like, oh, that's why the kid's been struggling with asthma. That's why the mom died and her last words were this. And it all comes together in this moment and it all makes sense. And I thought, wouldn't I love to have that moment for my life? You know, I think part of the, the de deepest desire of the human heart is to have these moments someday in our lives where it will all make sense sense. Y'all can go ahead and take that picture off the screen. Thank you. And I think that the desire of the human heart to, to make meaning of things sometimes causes us to go down the wrong path. In other words, how, you don't have to raise your hand, but I bet you, how many people know someone, <laughs> it's a kind way to say it, that like a small bad thing will happen and they'll just say something like, well, that happened because this you know, and they're so confident. And, and sometimes they might be right, but oftentimes, aren't you a little bit skeptical? It's like, are you serious? Are you gonna trace all this to this and make these connections? How do you know? The reality is we usually don't know. We usually don't know why the pain in our lives happens. I'd even say for most of us, we'll go to our graves not knowing. We'll go to our graves wondering, does it all make sense? Our problem, I think, is we know the answers in the gospel. We just don't know how to solidly put our feet on it. We know the answers in the gospel, but when it comes to the trials and struggles and, and hard things in our own lives, we just go to, to flimsy sentiments instead. We say things like, everything happens for a reason. Or my favorite, behind every cloud, there's a Silver lining, you know, we say these things and, and you know what, I'm not saying there's not kernels of truth behind those things. I do believe everything happens for a reason. And yet we oftentimes say these things just to make ourselves feel better. And we're not solidly planting our feet on any, you know, true theology behind those statements oftentimes. In fact, I, I would say those flimsy sentimental statements, I, I'm calling them hallmark card theology. Hallmark card theology will not get you through a dark night of the soul. This is why we need Paul's words today. I want to read this text to you, and I want you to notice something. The text starts off with Paul describing something bad, and the text ends with Paul rejoicing. And what we find in the middle is the gospel. 
Our scripture reading for today is Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice." Let's dive in here. Verse 12 is the thesis statement of the whole text. If you remember back in grade school, they teach you the way to write an essay is to start with a main idea and then three supporting arguments, and then you close with the summary. That's almost exactly how this passage follows. The main idea is this in verse 12. Now, here's the context within the letter. If you remember, this church in Philippi was Paul's favorite. He was so close to them. They had a special place in his heart. If you've ever heard from someone that you're close to who's been through something really bad, there's an elephant in the room until they tell you how they are. It's like maybe you see them and they've lived through a disaster of some kind or a trial of some kind or they almost lost their life or they did lose someone important to them. And the next time you see them, it's almost like, before we get into all the chit-chat, can I just know how you are? This is Paul addressing how he is. This is Paul talking to the elephant in the room. He didn't have to explain what has happened to me. They knew what had happened to him. He had been arrested. He had been thrown in prison. He had lost his freedom. He was under 24-7, you know, house arrest, chained to a Roman guard. This is how Paul was doing, and they're eager to know how he is. And so you can imagine how relieved they were when they heard this from his letter What man intended for harm, God is intending for good. What's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And he's not just saying, oh, by the way, there's a silver lining behind the cloud of my imprisonment. Paul's whole purpose in life was to advance the gospel. So there's a sense that he's saying, he's saying, I know you've been worrying about me, But I want you to know, brothers, the best possible thing has actually happened. How is it that his imprisonment could be the best possible thing? Well, let's look at verse 13. Here's a a result clause or purpose clause, so that, and then it's going to give us a clue. There's going to be two good things that Paul talks about that's come out of his imprisonment. Number one, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Brief historical context whatever the known population of the world was at this point in time, point zero, 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 zero something percentage of them had ever heard the name Jesus. 
This was a brand new thing. At first, the Roman Empire just thought that Christianity was a new faction of Judaism. By the way, Judaism was an acceptable religion in the Roman Empire, but they had to figure out what this new thing was. And all the Jewish people were saying, no, these Christians, they're, they're different from us. They're wacko. They say things like Jesus is Lord. Well, you got to be careful in the Roman Empire saying anybody is Lord besides Caesar. And so Paul's thrown in prison. He's interrogated. They're trying to slow down the progress of the gospel. But guess what? The way that Paul was kept, as I mentioned, was there was a, a guard that was chained to him 24-7. They probably took shifts. And it wasn't just any guard. This term here, imperial guard, is actually a particular type of Roman soldier. In, in the Greek, imperial is, is actually the praetorius. It's praetorian guard. You may have heard of the praetorian guard. They were the SEAL Team 6 of the Roman Empire military. They were assigned the special services. So, you know, the, you had the Praetorian Guard who got, guarded Caesar himself and his family and the highest ranking officials in Rome. So now like a SEAL Team 6 member who has access to the palace is chained to Paul 24-7. And you can imagine what they were getting a steady diet of. So, you know, Paul's saying it's become known to these guys, this, this impressive, you know, this, this, uh, this force in Rome who has access to the palace that my imprisonment is for Christ. In other words, he's saying, look, they're realizing I'm not here because I killed somebody. I'm not here because I want to overthrow the ruler. I'm in chains because of Jesus and the name of Jesus is now being spoken in the highest offices of the Roman Empire. Do you feel the weight of that? By the way, I, I, this isn't in my notes, but I'm just, I'm, you guys get whatever the leftovers are. It, the good leftovers, right? You know, like sweet leftovers you put in the microwave, like that was actually still good. Um, I want you to turn to the end of the book, like turn to the very end. Page 22, if you're in this little journal. So it's chapter four, verse 12. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Like, guys, like, I'm telling you, when the Philippians would have read that, they'd have been like, <gasps> it's like this mic drop that Paul's given, you know? And I'm saying this now because it's such a cool verse. I don't know if it's going to be me or Lloyd, so I'm going to say it now in case it's Lloyd that gets to preach it. I want to preach it. <laughs> this is Paul going, like, yeah, yeah, I greet you from this person, especially those from the household of Caesar. How did the household of Caesar find out about Jesus from the Praetorian guards that are chained to him? This is an absolutely fantastic thing. This is a huge deal. Now, I like to think one of the benefits of attending Fellowship Bible Church is every now and then you get to hear a good Chick-fil-A story. <laughs> My previous life before I was in ministry, I, was, I worked at, at Chick-fil-A in their corporate office in and when you think of Chick-fil-A, you think of the food, you think of the, you know, the my pleasure. And, and the third thing is probably the cows, the cows. Uh, many of you don't know how the cow campaign, Eat More Chicken campaign came about. It originally was just a billboard idea from the advertising agency that, that Chick-fil-A was working with in 1995. And Chick-fil-A started putting a couple billboards up and they were such a hit that it eventually became more than a billboard campaign. But in the mid-90s, most of the country had not heard of Chick-fil-A. 
There's still a lot of parts of the, uh, the country today that are unevangelized with the gospel of chicken. But in the mid-90s, this was way more the case. So these billboards you know, started popping up in a couple of places. But what really got the Eat More Chicken campaign on the map was what happened in 1996 in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Big billboard, eat more chicken, huge cow with the paintbrush. One morning, people driving to work, they look up, there's no cow. The cow had been taken. The great cow napping of Chattanooga 1996 had happened. Now, if you're a Chick-fil-A guy back then, your first thought is, this is terrible. It's like the, the billboard doesn't make sense without the cow. The whole point is the cow. It's not funny. Like, people won't get it. Not to mention those cows are really expensive. But then a funny thing started happening. Some of you know where this is going. All of a sudden, the news got interested. All of a sudden, it started showing up. It made national news. So this little bitty regional billboard campaign in the mid-90s, no one's ever heard of Chick-fil-A. All of a sudden, Chick-fil-A is on everybody's radar and everybody thinks the joke is hilarious because the cow was stolen. Now, turns out it was some teenagers in Chattanooga that had stolen it and you know, shoved it in the basement of some mom, you know, their mom's basement or something like this. And I just had this, this image in my mind of this Chick-fil-A cow in the darkness of the basement <laughs> writing a letter to his fellow cows saying... <laughs> I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the good news. <laughs> By the way, when I told that story last week at Brentwood, I'm, I'm not making any of this up at all. My wife, Jody got a text a couple days later from a, a lady at Brentwood campus that my wife knows, and she said, Tell your husband that my boyfriend was one of the ones that stole the cow. <laughs> she said, I may know a little more about that story than I should. <laughs> this is true. Now, Paul's point is this what seemed bad has actually been the best possible thing. And Paul is so wrapped up in the advancement of the gospel that what's good for the gospel is good for Paul. Do you see how entwined his life and his purpose is with this? Now he's gonna go on and give another positive thing that has happened. Look at verse 14. Most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. When I first read this, I thought, I don't know if I'd speak more boldly if, if I was one of those guys. You know, Paul gets arrested. I might want to be quiet. And then I remembered this principle that you see lived out on the battlefield sometimes where, you know, the men are in the bunker and they're scared and the, the, the officer is saying charge and nobody wants to charge. And then finally, one brave soul picks up the flag and starts charging across the battlefield. And that inspires the courage in the rest of them. And they all charge following him. It turns out that courage inspires courage. And I think this is exactly what is happening. Most of the brothers, you know, they're now speaking without fear. And so not only was the Praetorian Guard hearing about the gospel, but now the gospel from the local church there in Rome was spreading with more fervor. It's the second good thing. Now, it's not all good news. There's this little bit of a twist in verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm 
put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. This is a puzzling text. I read a lot of commentaries trying to figure out what was going on, and, and we don't know. But here's what we can assume from what we do know. There were apparently some leaders and teachers in the early Christian movement who were jockeying for position and influence, as, as sad as that sounds. And it seems that some were using Paul's imprisonment to advance themselves. So it's kind of, well, Paul's on the sidelines right now, so I'm going to start being the one in the headlines, in the, you know, teaching in the synagogue. And well, wow, Paul's not the only good teacher in this place. You kind of that kind of idea. Now, this bothers us as it should. Part of the reason it bothers us is because it's just wrong that somebody would use the name of Jesus to advance their own personal agendas. But part of the reason why it bothers us so much is we tend to idealize the early church. They were people just like us. Their congregations were up to their neck in sin just like ours are. Their leaders and teachers had mixed motives just like ours do. And so what, what Paul's driving at here with this next verse, which is beautiful, is what then? You know, how, what, how do you make sense of all this? The good and the bad, you know, the bitter and the sweet. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Amen. Thank you. You knew on cue. I was like, Luke Luttrell, amen. Thank you. Now, here Paul is, his freedom taken away, his so-called friends kicking him while he's down to invest their own agendas. And all Paul can think about is the gospel's going forth. Even though it's costing me my freedom and my reputation, the gospel's going forth. And in that, I rejoice. I want you to see something. I'm gonna mark on our journal page here all the different places where the gospel or the, the name of Jesus, the specific name of Jesus shows up in this text. And I'm gonna be doing this throughout this study. Um, you can follow along, I'd encourage you to, if, if you want to. So the gospel is gonna show up in a couple different places. It's gonna show up right here in verse 12. So here's how I'm labeling the gospel with a cross with a circle around it. That's the symbol that I'm using here to mark up this book. So it's in verse 12 and it's also down in verse 16 right there. And then the, the, the name Jesus, the specific name Jesus or Christ, I'm gonna mark those with a cross. So you have a Christ there, you have a Christ down in verse 15, you got a Christ down in verse 17, and then one last one down here in verse 18. Now let's count them up. Two gospels and four Christs, four Jesuses, mentions by name. Don't forget, this is the part of the letter where Paul is telling his friends how he is doing. One of the commentators that I read this week said this, not that Paul does not feel personal injury or that he has relinquished all his ambition, but in Christ, his ambition and desire have found a true and satisfying goal, a goal by which all pain and gain 
are redefined. This idea has just slain me this week. Is it bad to have ambition? Is it bad to have desire? No, the Bible wouldn't say those things in themselves are sinful. But do you notice, I love the way this commentator said it, in Christ, Paul's ambition and desire have found a true and satisfying goal. It's like, what's the target of your ambition? What's the target of your desire? Is it self-promotion? Or is it something much greater and grander and beautiful and healing than you? I might say it this way, for Paul, how he is doing and how the gospel is doing are one and the same. And this is where, if we're honest, we start to feel some distance from Paul. At least I do. If you're like me, I don't wake up in the morning thinking how good it is that I can forfeit my life for the gospel today. Most days I feel like I'm just trying to make it. I've got a thousand things on my to-do list just like you do. And if I can get five or six of them done in a day, that feels kind of good. If I can keep the peace in the relationships around me and in my own heart. That feels many times like a good day. You might be thinking, it's great that Paul's life was so for the gospel. But that doesn't really sound like me. The way that I've been thinking about it is realizing that, that Paul had exchanged his life. You know, he, he'd exchanged his life in such a profound way that, that I'm kind of left in the dust. It, it just feels to me in my courageously real moment here, I, I can't identify with Paul mostly in this. So I think as we apply this message, there's a couple of ways we could go. One is we could say, let's go be like Paul. You know, and everybody, Paul's example inspire us like it did these early believers. And guys, I don't think that would be a terrible application. I think a lot of teachers would teach it that way and it would be a good biblical sermon. Another way we could go in our application is to say, man, we need to get on our game. You know, I could do a drive-by guilting, just like, you guys don't care about the gospel like Paul does, you know, and neither do I. Point the gun toward me, and we could all walk out of here feeling really guilty that our passion for the gospel doesn't measure up. But I want to go in a different direction. Because as I thought about this text and how to apply it this week and the gap between me and the great apostle Paul and the gap between most of us normal Christians and the great apostle Paul, I thought, well, maybe the point of the text is not to look at Paul. Maybe the point of the text is not to be how great Paul is, that his life was so forfeit for the gospel. Maybe the point of the text is the gospel. Now, maybe rather than looking at Paul and being inspired and awed by Paul, we should look at the work of Jesus Christ again and be awed and inspired by the work of Jesus Christ. Because the only thing that could make Paul say, I don't care about my chains, I don't care about my reputation as long as the message of Jesus is going forth, is if Paul actually believed the message of Jesus was the greatest thing in the universe. Do you? 
do I? Or do we need to take a fresh look this morning at the, the beauty of the gospel? To, to see that the, the beauty, that the diamond of the gospel from a new angle as the new light reflects on it in our moment, in our time, this day. And so this is where I want to take us with the few minutes we have left. Let's hear the gospel again. At its core, the gospel is good news. That's what the word gospel means. It is good news, not good advice. This contrasts it with every other religion in the world. Every other religion says, I've got some good advice for you. If you wanna live a holy life, if you wanna get to God, if you wanna be righteous, if you wanna reach some Zen platform of fullness, here's what you need to do. Get your life straight. Do these eight practices. Do these kinds of things. That's every other religion in the world. The gospel is not good advice. It's good news. It's an announcement. It's a proclamation that something has happened in history that has tremendous implications for you and me and the rest of the creation. Imagine a king going off to war and leaving the capital city behind, vulnerable. And the only reason he risks the capital city is he believes that he can defeat the enemy out on the battlefield, far away from the capital so that the citizens of the capital, capital are safe and don't have to fight. And the king disappears and is gone for a long period of time with his army and the citizens of the capital are so nervous because they're thinking to themselves, if they don't win that battle, we're gonna have to fight for our lives. In the distance, they see a herald come over the hill. What is he going to say? The herald announces the battle has been won. You don't have to fight for your lives. All you need to do now is live your life according to the fact. Live your life according to the truth. Go about with joy. Go about with freedom. You know, exercise your business. Exercise your relationships. Take care of your family. You don't have to fight for your lives. The battle has been won for you. This is the message of the gospel. And so this proclamation comes over the earth and speaks to human beings who are separated from God by sin. The message is forgiveness is available. Forgiveness is freely given to all who believe to a world that's characterized by suspicion of God, by distrust of God. The message of the gospel is you can trust God. He is gentle. He is humble. He laid down his life for yours. So trust him. The gospel is the big reveal the whole creation had been waiting for to make sense of the mess. The gospel assures us that when all is said and done, your worry, my worry, your doubt, my doubt will all be laid to rest. Everything upside down will be turned right side up. Everything broken, banged up, and busted will be redeemed, restored, and renewed. Everyone who has nothing now will have everything then. And whoever has lost something, whoever has grieved something, when Jesus completes his work of making all things new, that thing will be found. That thing will be restored. That relationship will be renewed. And there will be a sense of all that we will look around and say to one another, did you know it was going to be this good? Did you know it was going to be this whole Most importantly, the gospel is the good news about 
Jesus, the most magnificent, beautiful, strong, loving, humble individual who has ever lived. The news about Jesus describes this moment in the story of creation when all who have eyes to see can say, no way, he did it. No way, it makes sense. No way, pain is not wasted. No way, broken pieces fit into a beautiful, coherent whole. And the question for you this morning is the same question that's been true for every Christian since the early church. And that is this, is believing and proclaiming that message worth giving your life to? And, and the, the challenge of that question is not, would you just die for Jesus? I think most of us would, not all, but most of us would if we said, renounce your faith or die. Many of us, I think, would die for Jesus. That's not the hard thing, honestly. The hard thing is, how will we live out the minutia? The text messages, the eating, the cleaning, the carpools, the errands, the meetings. How can we live those moments for Jesus? Because what's true on the grandest scale of creation must also be true in every inch of our heart. And so how I wanna challenge us this morning is where in your life could you say what has happened to me has turned out for the advancement of the gospel? And in that, I rejoice. And so every week, Lloyd and I end with, with this slide with an application on, and it's our invitation for joy. And, and I wanna do that again today. And, and here it is. You don't have to do this. This is an invitation to apply this message this week. Share with someone a story from your life that fits that thought. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Like, how would you live out this text literally in your own life story? And here's the kicker. If you can't think of a story, start praying you'll live one. Because there are really two kinds of people in the room. Those of you that can say, yeah, I can tell my story with this. I can talk about the hardships of my life and this broken thing and that broken thing with that sentence. And then there's a lot of us, maybe I think most of us would say, I don't really know if I can think of a story at least yet that I could tell with that phrase. And the best thing we can do this week is start praying that we'll start living that story. Before we sing a song and leave, I want you to hear one of these stories. We're gonna watch a video about a family in our body, David and Katie Bailey. They attend our Brentwood campus and they've been living one of these stories. And I want you to see what God has done. I'm Katie. This is David. <laughs> we have three amazing daughters, four grandchildren. David and I met when he I was 15, a week shy of 16. He was 18 and um, stayed together uh, off and on for five years and then decided to get married. So we had kids um, fairly, fairly soon, right out of the gate. I mean, you know, about a year later, we had our first one, um, Caitlin, uh, our oldest, 
Um, a couple years later, along came Kristen, and then a couple years later, along came Caroline. So uh, Kristen is 26, not married. Um, uh, then, and we have Kristen's daughter living with us, Farah. Farah's six, and she's been at our house for about four years now. Uh, Farah came to live with us um, one day after a lot of drug paraphernalia had been found um, in Kristen's apartment. I would say that it's very difficult to have a daughter who is, or a child who is a meth and heroin addict. You know, when the bottom falls out, you know, what's your go-to? I mean, we were already plugged into church, already connected with people. I'm sure we probably served the Sunday after, you know, the bottom really fell out, no matter how hard it gets, just... Stay connected. Yeah, stay connected. Keep giving, and, and that means serving or praising the Lord. You know, it's the only way we could have gotten through it. You know, when um, when your back's against the wall, um, in our case with, with our daughter, um, there's no place else to go but to God and to the Word. It, it actually was a cold winter night, and she asked me, she said, Dad, can I come home and stay in your garage? And I said, no, you can't. It's not... It's not something that you ever think that you will ever have to say to a child. You know, you want to help your child and you know what they're asking for is not going to help them. It's, it's just going to prolong the inevitable, you know. But so, so many times before, even before that, there were things that I just thought to myself, this has got to be, and we say, you know, like, okay, this is going to be her rock bottom. This is going to be it. You know, we're finally at the end of the road here and something's going to happen. And then, you know, just keep going, continuing, continuing. But um, she, she was ready, you know. She was ready to answer. And, and you know, God spoke to her within a few days in, in a jail cell, you know. Gave her scripture, and uh, that's just amazing to hear. She's doing absolutely wonderful. Uh, she went through a, um, a program uh, with the Hope Center. Hope Center Ministries is a ministry to lead people um, in addiction of any kind um, to Christ. And through that, that's, that, they say through that, through leading them to Christ, then they they get freedom from whatever addiction that they're, you know, struggling with. Uh, she's now interning with uh, the Hope Center uh, in Virginia and in hopes of actually making it back here and being part of um, um, the Hope Center where she actually um, was attending. She's, she's just, she's giving back. She's pouring into other women leading them to Christ and helping them through their struggle the same way that they did, that other women did for her when she came through. And um, she said she can't imagine herself being anywhere else doing anything else. So 